Welcome to Leader You by Black River Performance Management, where we believe work should fuel the human spirit, not drain it. In this leadership podcast, we will dive into the lived experiences of people flourishing in today's workplace and beyond. Join us to hear real-life examples of experiences from our own lives and from the leaders we know and trust. Successful organizations are dependent on people being competent in their job. To prepare people to do the work, we must prepare them according to the skills, knowledge, and abilities required for the job correctly and consistently. One of the services Black River offers is evaluating employee and candidate competencies. Our 25 competency assessment focuses on the soft skills, or what we like to call them, essential skills. Our competency assessment is used for more accurate hiring practices as well as for staff development. Every organization could use these competencies to ensure an individual's skills match the soft skills required by the job, to nurture the right talent, to improve productivity, and to develop dynamic leaders. For a sample of the 25 leadership competencies, definitions, and assessment, email us at info at blackriverpm.com. Thank you for listening to the Leader You podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing a dear friend and long-term friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Dinu Mystery. She is a board-certified plastic surgeon who has been practicing in Boise since 2001. She's a Fulbright scholar and received her medical degree from Washington University in St. Louis. She pursued general and plastic surgery training at the University of Texas Health Center in Houston and continued her training with her fellowship in cancer reconstruction at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, both in Houston. Dr. Mystery practiced for six years with the McGregor Medical Association, a large multi-specialty physician group also located in Houston, where she served as section chief of the Department of Plastic Surgery and chairman of the Department of Surgery. She practices the full spectrum of cosmetic and reconstructive surgery, but her areas of special interest are breast surgery, augmentation, reduction, lifts, and reconstruction. And as well as body contouring, tummy tucks, and liposuction. It's my pleasure to have you here on the show today. And the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is because you're such an incredible mentor to me. Uh, for many years, I've seen you as a leader in your community, uh, in the industry. And I also know and have seen how teamwork plays a role. It's actually what made me fascinated in human behavior was watching surgeons in the operating room <laughs> and how teams, how they work well effectively, as well as how when it's not going well, how it can go ineffectively. You've been, an, like I said, an incredible mentor that has given me many of the skills that I have today. And I would, I'd like to thank you for that, number one. And number two, um, we're here to talk about the leadership competency uh, teamwork. And I couldn't think of anybody better than somebody, I, the guru that I learned from um, as far as what it looks like to have an effective team that cares for one another and that um, is functioning where you kind of have a synchronicity where it's a dance and you, you kind of learn to finish the other person's sentences and know what they're going to want and what they're going to need. Um, and so I'd like to discuss some of what, what that looks like for many people who don't understand the operating room and how it works and how teamwork is such a significant 
keep a player in uh, outcomes, inpatient outcomes, and also the overall work experience. So thank you for being taking the time to be on the podcast today to discuss teamwork. Uh, well, thank you for having me, and thank you very much for your kind words. Thank you. So do you want to share just a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in plastic surgery, and how you ended up where you are today in Boise? Um, well, I pretty much always knew I wanted to go into medicine. And eons ago, I saw a NOVA program, except, uh, actually, on craniofacial reconstruction, and always thought that was incredibly fascinating. Um, when I got to medical school, though, uh, I was pretty sure I wanted to do OBGYN. And I chose to do surgery as my first rotation uh, because I wanted to get it out of the way because um, you want to do what you're least likely to do first while you're still very green. And I did my surgical rotation and just fell in love with surgery and then spent the rest of my fourth year trying to convince myself that was not what I wanted to do. Um, but in the end, I also got to do a rotation with plastics. And then that was that. Ever since then, that's all I wanted to do. Um, so, uh, and then I uh, had a great experience doing cancer reconstruction in Houston and have pretty much had an emphasis on breast surgery of all kind ever since then. Yes. And I've been yes. able to accompany you on a multitude of breast surgeries. Yes. <laughs> um, and that is actually the, I, you were my first job out of school as a surgical tech. And I, I was thinking about um, even how you selected me as an employee. Uh, you went through a lot of students. Uh, you had a lot of people in your room and you were looking for an assistant. And so um, as you were looking to bring a teammate or even after I moved on and moved out of the area or when I went to China or any of these other things and came back to you, when you're looking to add someone to your team, what are some of the things that you're thinking of um, when you actually have them on a little bit of an internship? You get to see how they show up. Um, it's very interesting, but you can always tell, even when people are students, who has aptitude um, because obviously you don't know everything yet but some people are very teachable I guess that's the best best word for it that someone pays attention um, someone is involved um, is not just waiting to be told what to do mm -hmm. um, in breast surgery we're almost always doing both sides and so we always talk about you get to learn on the first one, but when we get to the other side, you should have an idea about how this is going to roll. And some people just never pick up the flow process mm -hmm. of watching mm -hmm. and anticipating. Right. And certainly for the assistant, the anticipating part is huge. Um, and that is not always something that you can teach someone. Um, it's something that people either have or they don't have. And I've, I've been very lucky in that I've had uh, several students after you that I was able to sort of handpick mm -hmm. as assistants after you moved on. Um, 
Unfortunately, that means that those people typically have aptitude um, and intelligence. And so everybody moves on to bigger and better things after a while, like you did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I think that you can often tell even when people are students, who's going to be a good assistant. And the other is personality, which is a huge part of teamwork, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, can I, my surgeries are very long. Can I spend eight hours with this person um, without wanting to poke their eyeballs out? <laughs> <laughs> or stab them with the scalpel. <laughs> Pretty much. So personality is part of it. Yeah, so... People might not understand, but when you're doing a seven, eight hour surgery, which many, we did many and we had such meaningful conversations about the surgery. And sometimes when things are just going with the flow, it's, you know, it's about what's going on in the world and things like that. But really, it's it's who you want to spend time with, because wouldn't you say that the people that you're working with is where you're spending the majority of your life with these people, right? I, I have. It's kind of like when your kids are too young to drive and that you're spending a lot of time in the car with them. When you're in an enclosed situation where everybody kind of has to talk um, and in the OR, you don't have people scrolling on their phones. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe anesthesia. It forces you to have conversations <laughs> and yeah. uh, you learn a lot about people and um, you often have fairly deep conversations while you're operating, um, just because we're there for many hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do get to know people very well and it does make a difference who's in the room. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about when a surgery goes really well and everything is anticipated and it's just it's like I said, it's like a dance where everybody just knows their role. Everything goes smoothly. Um, the person that is, is setting up for you, the assistant, ha- makes sure that everything that you need is ready so there's no waiting for things. Um, people enjoy each other's company. And it's just at the end of the day, the patient has a better experience. You have a better experience. You know, the assistant, the nurse, everybody in that room is happy that they're doing what they're doing and they're helping these patients, um, maybe many recovering from cancer or reconstruction or just um, helping them feel better better and have more self-confidence about, you know, how they look and how they're aging on, and all of the things. So I'm, th- I was, I'm thinking about obviously the times when it doesn't go as smoothly. Um, can you share some examples of what that looks like and how the, how the team is responsible for those types of things? Well, I think in surgery, more than people realize, the surgeon is only one part of the whole complex dance, like you said. And I can only control what I do. Um, and there are many, many other people contributing to the flow of that day. The anesthesia provider, all the way down to the person that sterilized the instruments, whom we may not even know. Um, All of those things play an integral part on how that surgery is going to go. And if one part fails, then it does depend very much on the flexibility of who else is in the room 
on how quickly we can uh, figure out what's wrong, figure out plan B. Uh, everybody needs to stay calm and everyone needs to communicate. Um, you can start yelling at people, but that typically doesn't make them function better. Yeah. And so often it's just a matter of clearly communicating what the problem is and, and then um, tasking people with making the changes that need to happen, but asking them things they are actually capable of doing. And that sometimes is the problem when people start getting angry mm-hmm. is that they're asking the circulator to miraculously produce an instrument and she doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to call somebody else to get it. Um, and so it, it's kind of like yelling at the gate agent about a mechanical delay um, at the airport is that person has no control over the situation. Um, I think that's where uh, you really do have to step up, uh, take control of the situation, but not ask people to do things that they're clearly not capable of doing. And, and those are the stressy situations. Yeah. It's you're you're explaining emo, uh, emotional intelligence, and that is exactly what I saw displayed in your room. Like, doesn't mean you didn't get frustrated or you know get irritated or have like I need this, I need it now, quicker than later, you know. But but what what I really saw was psychological safety. Um, people didn't feel like they were going to get screamed at. They didn't, you know. It's like we need to have this, get this as soon as you can. These types of things. Contrastly or conversely, I would see in other rooms because you know I, I I worked with a variety of different doctors and I did a lot of orthopedics as well. Um, I would see doctors that would come in and just you know they would scream and and there wouldn't be any psychological safety and so then there's a lot of lateral violence and just stuff rolling downhill. So the surgeons rude to the assistant and the nurse and then the nurse or the nurse the nurse is rude to the tech and it just ends up being a real toxic environment where people are afraid and it in, ends up making for bad outcomes um, because people are afraid to speak up. That's oh, absolutely true. I think we have come a long way in my 20 plus years of practicing of empowering the other people in the room. The surgeon is still the captain of the ship but uh, you know you can't sail the ship without the sailors. So you, uh, I think, over the past twenty years, the culture of empowering everybody to speak up if they think something is amiss, and hopefully, I think the younger batch of surgeons are less godlike and um, take that information or understand that sometimes they are wrong. Um, and, uh, and use it for the benefit of the patient. And we're all there for the patient. Um, and I think that's important uh, because you cannot independently get a good outcome. No surgeon can walk into the room and do a surgery alone. Mm-hmm. And so you, you do have to be, depend on your team to help you make that good outcome. And you have to acknowledge that. And I think that's part of, of the teamwork thing is that you thank people at the end of the day and that you uh, acknowledge when people are doing a good job. Yeah, I think people really like to feel appreciated. 
and yeah. and um, and it, it's it's like they want to do it within their own heart, but many people don't get that anywhere else in their life either. You know, you think about not everybody's home lives are you know a place where they're feeling appreciated either. Sometimes it's it's just the little things like appreciating you know, today went really well, or this is what I noticed about, you know, you, thank you for having that. I had forgotten about that, or, you know, just little things. I know whenever I would make notes um, for any surgeon that I would work with, they would really appreciate it the next time. Like, they'd be like, you, I haven't worked with you in six weeks, and you remembered that I like, you know, yep. I like my four by fours wet, you know, like whatever the little thing is. Um, I think that makes them feel appreciated and that you really care too. Just the little yeah. things sometimes. Unfortunately, in today's medical world, um, more and more, uh, it has become more corporate and the assumption is that every player is interchangeable. That you know, a nurse is a nurse, uh, and that the fact that that person has never been in your room should not matter. And ultimately, it matters hugely if you have the same crew helping you every week doing cases they've seen before. Um, your level of confidence about having a good day goes up dramatically if you walk into the room and you see that you've got all the people that about what you do. Mm -hmm. And that's something that unfortunately in corporate medicine now, everybody's a cog. And as long as they have X number of nurses, they feel like they have, you know, the team, mm -hmm. but it's much more individual than that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we know what it's like when you walk in and you haven't seen, or you have a traveler or you have, yep. you have, you, you just see, and you're like, okay, this is not, and you, you try to keep your head up, you try to stay positive, but you know there's going to be a lot more work and it's like, okay, now do I have this, this, this? So then luckily you have an assistant. That does bridge the gap. Uh, it helps for like, me. For absolutely. You. Yeah. I mean, that's their role and people who don't understand that, that is what the assistant's role is, is to go in and to make sure that the surgeon has what they need. They have the, the exact instruments they have, you know, they're, they're looking for the right sutures. They're, they're trying to have everything there to keep the patient under anesthesia for less time and to, to make everything go smoothly. But even still, that can be a, a heck of a load for that person to come in and find out this, this instrument pan hasn't been sterilized and this, the case has been pulled and it looks like a different doctor that has a completely different set of instruments or whatever, whatever comes up. And so um, I love that you point out that it's, it really depends on in the morning who's on your team. It doesn't mean it's always going to go bad. Sometimes people can surprise you, but you just know that you've got to get, you really need to start doing the checklist right then. Well, it, uh, I think that it's important to be able to feel confident that you do not have to think through everyone else's role. Mm -hmm. And that gets kind of uh, emotionally and psychically exhausting in many roles. That's true in my clinic as well, mm -hmm. that if I don't feel confident that the people who are working for me are 
detail oriented and are doing all the things, then I feel like I have to double check everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in the OR too, is that all of a sudden I'm running, uh, making sure that the anesthesia provider knows that they shouldn't be um, repositioning the bed, which is somebody who works with me knows that, mm-hmm. or that, you know, a variety of things where you're starting to have to think through other people's roles mm-hmm. and you start becoming a micromanager rather than concentrating on what you're doing and having confidence that everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And um, that's the ideal situation. Uh, and then micromanaging makes people annoyed. Mm-hmm. And so then you start having a sort of a confrontational vibe mm-hmm. Um but it's it comes from a place of not feeling confident that everybody knows what they're doing. Yeah, they, and then that gets lack, toxic. They're lacking competence. And one of our one of our tenants at Black River is that enthusiasm does not equal competence. I mean, <laughs> they can come in smiling and happy to go, and you know, ready to go. But that doesn't mean they've even been in plastics, and that that now they're you know they might normally work in spine. And, and neuro, and then all of a sudden they're thrown into your room that day. So it is, a, it's uncomfortable for them as well as you. It doesn't, I mean, surgical techs are able to do that, but it doesn't mean they're, they're competent, but it doesn't mean they know all the ins and outs. And that is yeah. of your specific case and, and those types of things. And so it is nice to have a team that really you know, this is, they're the subject matter experts as it relates to plastics, or they're the subject matter experts as it relates to hearts, or whatever their specialty is. It's nice to have a team that focuses on that so that there can be a synchronicity and there can be, you know, really better patient outcomes. Um, I think we do have a huge, huge issue right now with finding quality healthcare workers. Uh, do you want to yep. speak to that? Well, I I think that uh, the pandemic just uh, brought out certain inequities and magnified them. That we are not um, rewarding the people on the front lines who actually provide the service as much as we are rewarding people who do the administration or the insurance industry or all the people who are actually not face-to-face with the patients and it's hard work and that means that people will tend to leave the face-to-face hard work of being a nurse uh, or a nurse's aide um, to move on to other fields uh, that are more remunerative and that got extreme during the pandemic when the the working environment for being in the hospital was hugely stressful. We lost a lot of people during the pandemic and they're not coming back. And so we we have to find a way to make it not just emotionally rewarding to be in medicine, but to make it uh, a career where people can afford to buy a house. And right now where I am in Boise, it's gotten so expensive to live that we're having increasing difficulty with nurses and physicians 
to find a place where they can live. And that's, that's not sustainable yeah. and it's true nationwide. Yeah. And then I, I don't understand how the sign on bonuses and all of this travel, I, I don't understand how that could be cheaper than just paying local people a better wage and, and creating a better environment for them. Uh, you've got me. That's, that's where the corporate structure of medicine would have to change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as we, as I think about teamwork, I think about the many different people that come across your room too, or just over your career. Um, what are some of the the key things that you see in an effective team? Like, you know, we talked about trust and emotional intelligence and safety, but what other things would you say are some of the things that, you know, really stand out to you and maybe some ways to build some of those skills in your teams? Um, I, I think there has to be a certain willingness to accept criticism. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it matters a lot how it's given, but some people take it better than others as well, because there definitely are always uh, areas where there's going to be improvement needed. Um, we're always learning. Um, me too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think constructive criticism is, is part of the process and that can be difficult for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, people uh, take criticism uh, badly and then it becomes confrontational. Um, acknowledgement. I think we take each other for granted mm-hmm. um, frequently. And that happens frequently. I think when we have worked together for a while that we cease to um recognize the role that our various partners play, um, which becomes very evident when people go on maternity leave or Mm -hmm. are ill and you suddenly realize how much you depend on that person. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those things are are super important. And then, um, at least for me, honesty, um, it, it is the worst thing in the world to believe that you have a good relationship with one of your coworkers and to have them blow up out of the blue one morning and recognize that they've been percolating on something that you could have addressed a long time ago if that person had just said something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think those are, those are the keys. Uh, I really, I encourage people just, just tell me if you have an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not be able to fix it, but tell me mm-hmm. well, because oftentimes we can. Yeah. We see that across see that. organizations as well. It, it's the whole thing about feedback. We, we say feedback equals love um, because really when you do care about somebody, you do want their development. You do want their growth. You do want them to do better. And we also believe that many people do want to do a good job uh, in general, most, most people. I mean, there's people that don't, but for the most part, I would say most people want to do a good job. They show up, they want to do good for you. They want to do good for their family. They want to, uh, you know, they want to have a good experience. 
sometimes they may not, they just don't know. They're not self-aware enough or if they don't get the feedback, they don't know. And talking about people is never loving when when your teammates know that you're not doing well, but you're but you don't know, right? Like when 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 you find out you find out that your performance isn't as good from other people versus you know the boss. It's night or everybody in the room is addressed. Um, you know, just so you know, we start the cases start at eight when somebody there's only one person late. You know, and you're you're addressing the whole room. It's like have the conversation with that person and let them know your expectations and how they're, you know, not meeting them versus addressing the entire room. Have those one-on-one conversations. Like these are these are areas for improvement for you. We need to make sure that we're on time. Or sometimes you might even find out this has happened to me when I was getting some students ready for the operating room. Was one person, one student was coming in late. Um, for a couple a couple weeks during the first week of the first couple weeks of school, and I was like, "This is she's not going to make it in the program. People aren't going to like let her be late for surgery." But once we realized she had, when we pulled her aside, she actually had daycare issues, and she was I don't know if she was too if she wasn't psychologically safe enough or if the, the power differential, whatever it was that she didn't feel. Like she could share that the daycare that she had to take her kid to daycare, so we had you know you have to we take for granted that people have the communication skills to say the things, but it's yes. communication is a skill that we have to teach and we have to train and we have to model and we have to um, put some time and energy into and not assume that everybody has the communication skills because not we have the curse of knowledge once we've learn things and have these skills and we expect everybody else is going to be exactly where we are. And I've, I've just found over time that they're not. And sometimes it's just modeling. It's getting a little bit more remedial and, and showing them what, what a good job looks like, what effective communication looks like and how having a difficult conversation is required for maintaining relation relationships. That's hard, though. I, I find that very difficult myself. Um, I not so much in the operating room, but in the office, I have a tendency to assume that everybody understands what the expectations are without explicitly saying exactly what the expectations are Mm -hmm. Um, and that occasionally gets me in trouble um, because I do occasionally have people that I hire who really don't understand innately and I assume that it would be demeaning to spell it out in excruciating detail exactly what is required but I have learned um, that the employee handbook is critical and going over it is important because even things as stupid as parking can become um, issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in my world, that's not something I think about. Um, but for my employees, that can be a really big issue. And so I, I have learned that I have to start with the basics, even if I think it's too rudimentary. I need to have had that conversation early on 
so that we've set expectations from the very beginning because that has gotten me in trouble occasionally. I just assume everybody here is an adult and that you're all going to behave like adults and um, not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. I I think about one of the leadership models that we teach and utilize is called uh, SL2, situational leadership model, where we really actually take the tasks of the job and you, let's say their job description, and actually look at those instead of that the whole role of the instead of the position as the assistant. Let's just say it's positioning the patient. How do they feel with that? How are they with the suturing piece? How are they with you know? So like look at each I each thing that they need to do, and find out where they may need help. Or say it's your secretary. You know, you somebody at the desk. Which job? Which tasks in the job? Do they need, are they a beginner and which ones are they kind of an expert at? Because there is a good form of micromanagement when they're not sure. Like, like you said, the parking thing, that could be a challenge in your office and in that area. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we assume that they've read the, they've read the handbook, but oftentimes mm-hmm. how, how often do you just sign off on something? Right. Yes. And, and I, I think about, I think of when I was working at ISU and, and even as having so many students, um, going through CWI, um, we'd have the handbook and it would have the dress code. It would have all the basics in it and they have to initial it. They have to sign it. But then when they show up with the inappropriate clothing, then you say, oh, remember where you signed the handbook? And we went over this and then they say, oh, I don't remember that. I, I've never, uh-huh. I've never been told that before. Or you're the only, you're the only person that's ever had a hard time with me wearing spaghetti straps at work. You know, these kinds of things. You, that at least you have something that you can go back and say, no, oh, we, we had this conversation and here's your signature here. And, and so sometimes you really just have to hold the other, that the, the holding people accountable part yeah. is the other part that I think people really struggle with because it's, we want people to like us. <laughs> yes. And so sometimes we let things slide and then we train them that it's okay. And then we yep. train the rest of the people, this is okay. She didn't say <clears throat> anything. She cut her legs out from under her because she didn't tell, you know, so as long as she's letting her come yep. in late, I'm leaving five, 15 minutes early on Friday. Like the culture is set by humans. Culture is created and recreated every day by the humans in the organization. That is the culture. And so yeah. we have the opportunity to shift and change it. But what we let what we let go is also as big of a problem as what we critique or, you know, are afraid no, of. I think that's absolutely true. I think at least for me, one of the hardest things about uh, leadership is um, situations where at least in for me it feels confrontational Mm -hmm. I am not a confrontational person Mm -hmm. um and so when you have these things that sound like nitpicking um but everybody's aware that somebody's coming in five minutes late on a regular basis um you have to call that person out and say hey you can't coming five minutes late Mm -hmm. or hey you need to stop surfing the internet um when you're supposed to be doing work um i have a really hard time with that Mm -hmm. um because i i agree you don't want people 
to be angry at you at work or to be afraid of you at work. Um, you would like to have a collegial environment. Um, I have a very small office. So if somebody is feeling, you know, angry, you're going to know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is uh, hard for me because those things do balloon. Then mm-hmm. they're spending more time on the internet, or then they start bringing crafts into work, or you know things that are just inappropriate, and uh, you have to nip it in the bud. But it does, and in the moment, feel like you're being okay. It does, and I think honestly, that's harder for women in positions of leadership. At least I feel that way. That uh, it feels more confrontational if a woman does it than if a man does it Mm -hmm. just because you're more used to having men in positions of leadership and that you have maybe a more friendly relationship with your boss if she's female so that if she picks on you for something maybe it feels more personal Mm -hmm. and um it's hard to redirect people without making it feel personal, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think you have a very soft, gentle way of doing it. Um, I, I've, I mean, I feel like I learned a lot from you, and I didn't learn from doing everything correctly. <laughs> you don't learn when you're doing everything right. You learn from, okay, That's true. you know, I, I think about when I was learning to suture. Um, no, let's redo that one. Let's do like it it takes time to build a skill. And to think that we all come to the workplace with all of the skills of the job, I think is an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. Of course, you hire them because they ha- they meet the minimum qualifications for the job, right? Otherwise, why are you hiring them, right? But also oftentimes people, you know, they're really trying to sell themselves, so they're going to say they have all the qualifications that are needed, which oftentimes they don't. Um, but they're responding to the job ad, which they're selling themselves for. So you get new employees, and then that's when the real conversations need to take place, the calibrating expectations, the really finding out. And and also people aren't going to come in and say, I don't feel competent in this area. But one thing they could might say is you maybe you, you list out the job description and you say, of these 20 items, maybe you could rate these in order of which ones you feel most skilled at to least skilled at. That can give people at least a little bit of better idea of where they might be struggling or where, where they might need help. Because oftentimes when people start a new job, they want you to believe in them and they want you to think that you know, you made the right decision hiring them, they're not really willing to come in and look dumb and vulnerable. They don't want to look yeah, dumb. Sure. So I think just having some of those meaningful conversations in the beginning and finding out maybe that maybe this area is an area where they're going to need some extra help. So, so for you, maybe that's in an office, in your office, you know, maybe computer skills aren't their, their highest, um, skill. And so then you could find out, you know, what, is there some class that I could put them in? Is there, is there something on YouTube? Is there something that I can help to find to help them bridge that, um, you know, bring their knowledge level up to the competency that you're looking for. But I think we assume too much and we don't, we don't find out from them 
exactly what it is where they're going to have the challenges, where their strengths are and where they might need some help for improvement because they just want to, they want you to be proud of them. They want the job. Mm -hmm. So you put, you know, the job description out and, and uh, everybody is great at everything you describe (laughs) until you ask them to do it. (laughs) Yes. 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 Well, that's the beauty of of having students in your room. That's the beauty of having interns. Yes. Um, any any workplace that could do that, I think really, let's talk about that, like how that shows you how they play on a team before you hire them. Uh, honestly, I have never hired anybody that I haven't had in the room with me uh, because I, I, I can't imagine how I would assess whether or not this person is going to be somebody that I can, like we talked about before, spend a great deal of time with. Mm-hmm. Um, some personalities are a good mesh. Some people are super competent, but they just have a personality that isn't going to mesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't really any way to do that in a in an interview. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, that's that's true in an office setting as well. Uh, my office has two employees. So if I, if I hire somebody and have an interview with them and I feel like they're personable and seem to have the right skill set, but if they don't get along with my other employee, it isn't going to work. And so we usually have at least one, if not two sessions where I pay them, but they come in and just kind of shadow um, and, you know, hang out for a day so that the other employee has an opportunity to chat with them, have lunch with them, kind of see whether or not this person has the right vibe for the office. Mm-hmm. Um, because people can have the right skill set and still not be a good fit. Absolutely. And training, as you know, is really expensive and time consuming. And um, to have somebody leave six weeks into the job, which happened to me not too long ago, um, is, it, you know, we were all actually okay with it because it, it was clear it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's it's hugely disruptive um, and costly, um, to have trained somebody and then had decide that they're just not going to work. They say it's so, up to 45. Um, I think yeah. having some opportunity to witness them in the actual work environment is critical. Yeah. I think they say it's 45 to hundred percent of their annual, annual salary it's anywhere in that to train somebody and lose them is what it costs. If you think about, yeah, I believe it. And not only that, it puts extra weight on the person who is in. You know, they have to take up all the extra slack. And then, are we yes. burning them out and risking losing them too? Yes, exactly. And that that really has been my focus in that situation is keeping my other person happy and. Um, giving them the support they need to make sure that I'm not overwhelming them. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's disconcerting because if you lose someone, the people who stay don't know how long that situation is going to play out mm-hmm. and doing it for 
a month to six weeks is doable. Um, doing it for three to six months, probably not. And in this kind of an environment, you're going to lose your other person. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. You brought up a topic that I'd like to hit for a minute, um, women in leadership. And uh, I think that, you know, we are a population that is growing um, more and more. We have the highest level, I mean, we have the highest number of older women, and more and more women are coming into leadership, hopefully more in politics. And um, I, I just... I think that we do have a little, we face a little bit different um, challenges. As you mentioned, one of the challenges is if a man oftentimes will say something, it's it's norm, it's okay if they correct people, but a woman can come off as be labeled as, say, a bitch or whatever, because, you know, they are firm or they have um, standards. And so I think oftentimes um, there's, a, there's a double standard there. But, you know, as a woman and a woman leader in your industry, what do you think about as that relates to building a team and being a leader? What are some of those challenges and how have you overcome some of those challenges? I think it is hard because um, I came through general surgery training and plastic surgery training at a time when it was uncommon to have women in plastic surgery. I think we still are only something like 17 to 20% of the, you know, plastic surgeons in practice. So you, at least when I was a resident, you were surrounded by men and in many cases really had to be one of the guys um, in order to, to get through the program. Um, but continuing to be a guy, um, when you are in practice does not serve you well. Um, and so you have to, you have to learn to soften the edges again. Um, and at the same time though, the softer your edges are, the weaker you appear. And I learned, for instance, um, when I was working in a large multi-specialty group, um, for the first three or four years, I didn't get a raise. And I couldn't figure it out. I was really upset. Um, and so I finally went to talk to the then chairman of the department. And I asked, I'm like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not getting a raise? And his answer was, well, you've never asked for one. And that is so contrary to the way that I think the female mind works is that if you think I'm doing a good job, you're going to reward me for that. And there's a, at least in my generation, a huge hesitance to go to people and say, Hey, I'm doing a really good job. You should pay me for this. But that's exactly what the workplace requires. Mm -hmm. And that's something you don't get taught. I think that you are being too forward or being too aggressive, or if they think you're doing a good job, they're going to reward you. And that's not how it works. And so there was a lot of, of having to recalibrate in that sense too, Mm -hmm. where you have to speak up for yourself. 
Um, and you have to be willing to toot your own horn, which is another thing that women typically are not as good at, um, about saying, look, these are the things that I'm really good at. I am valuable to you for these reasons. And therefore I should be rewarded for this. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are not skills that I had. And they certainly were not skills I were I was ever taught. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we didn't really have very many role models back in those days either mm -hmm. to tell us that that's how you were supposed to do it. Yeah. So I think that 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 is a significant component of mm -hmm. having to learn how to advocate for yourself and learning how to do it in such a way that uh, you don't get labeled a bitch. Yeah. But it's difficult. It is. It's a weird line to, to be on. Well, it you've, is. you've raised three daughters. And so how have you tried to incorporate that as, you know, as they've been going through? I, I've missed the stories of everything that's going on in their lives. Uh, but like they're all grown adults now. And, and how how do you notice a difference in in them in the way that they're able to advocate for themselves? You know, I I, I have to coach them. I, I think in some ways it's it's still not innate mm -hmm. um, that when they are interested in a job or that they need to be aggressively pursuing it mm -hmm. um, or if they send someone an inquiry and they don't get a response send them another one and they're like well but then they'll think I'm being annoying I'm like well that's part of the game the squeaky wheel is the one that gets responded to. So, you know, they're busy. They get 700 emails, pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. and, th and that I think is very difficult for women. Maybe that's difficult for everybody, mm -hmm. but um, cold calling people is something that you really <laughs> takes a lot of guts. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you have to coach people to be willing to, you've got to put yourself forward. Um, you have to show that you are, interested and that you're interested enough sometimes to make yourself a little bit of a nuisance um or or to reach out and network um because that also often seems like you're being forward mm -hmm. or that you're taking advantage of some sort of social uh you know you have to be careful with that. But people that you knew growing up, mm -hmm. um, they're like, no, I can't reach out to them. They were a, they were a soccer mom. And I'm like, no, you're an adult now. They knew you. Um, they they're doing something you're interested in. They may remember you. They may not. But yeah, reach out. Um, those are the connections that you have to take advantage of. But those are things I think you still have to coach mm -hmm. people. People in general, I think, are sometimes uncomfortable with. Um, just kind of talking to people and seeing if there are still connections available. Yeah, different behavioral yeah. or per personality styles. Definitely some are more introverted and that's even a more of a challenge than your extroverts. Um, and yeah. so knowing each individual and coaching them accordingly, that's one of the things that I do too in, in, my, in our business is find out like, who am I dealing with? Is this person an introvert or extrovert? Are they fast paced or are they slower paced so that I can help adapt, um, to their style or knowing how they like to communicate. Um, and when they know that about themselves, they actually are better at communicating as well. So 
it, it's another yes. tool. It's another tool to just have people knowing, you know, if it's more of a challenge. So confrontation is harder for S's and C's than it is for D's and for, and for well, and actually, I mean, excuse me, confrontation is harder for like in the disc for S's and C's, but like um, I's and D's don't mind it as much. So just because they're outgoing, even though like, the I people are more interested in people liking them and people pleasing. Just just different styles have different challenges. And just knowing whatever style you are is going to, it doesn't necessarily put you in a box, but it gives you an idea of where you might need some help, where you might need some coaching, where you might need some growth. Um, it, it, the people that are introverts may really struggle with getting feedback and giving feedback as well. So just know, you think about who speaks up in a meeting. It's, it's yeah. the extroverts. And, and so making sure that on the team that you're listening to everybody in the room um, and getting feedback and getting um, their input, that's a skill too, not just listening to the loud majority of the people, right? That's mm -hmm. true. Yeah. So as... Um, we start to close out. I wanted to say, like, see if you have maybe th two or three words of wisdom or, th or just tips or tricks that you think make a really strong team. We've kind of covered a lot, but, um, just your wisdom. <laughs> um, you don't know how wise I am, but, uh, Certainly, I think that an appreciation for the fact that no one does it alone is critical. Mm -hmm. And that, that uh, is true in, in all of the spheres, both personal and, and in my practice, that you can be great at what you do, but uh, you cannot provide whatever it is that you're doing in isolation. If the person who answers the phone at my office is incredibly rude, um, uh, that patient will not come into the office and will never get to meet me, even though I may be the right person to do their surgery. Mm -hmm. um, if the person in central supply does not order my implants for an implant procedure, then I will have assembled an entire team and have a patient. Um, but I won't be able to do the surgery that day because I don't have the equipment I need. So I, I think that a realization of the interconnectedness of all of the people who work around you keeps you humble, um, but also gives you some insight into the importance of all of those parts and pieces. And hopefully um, allows you to occasionally show appreciation so that they continue to do that stuff so that you can do your job. Mm -hmm. So um, you will either succeed or fail um, on all of the members of your team, regardless of what their roles are. So I think an appreciation of that is very helpful. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of wisdom. That's very wise. <laughs> Lots of years of experience. Uh, yep. Finding that out. Curious, um, what are your next plans uh, when you decide to stop doing surgery? 
Um, uh, I have a lot of gardening that hasn't been done. And I have a great many photographs that need to get put into albums. None of my kids have baby books. So <laughs> will, um, the photos exist. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have any immediate plans for retirement. But um, since my husband's been retired for a few years and has been enjoying a lot of hiking and biking. That's beginning to look pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe a little paddle boarding, just getting yeah, a lot of paddle boarding. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and all your insights as it relates to teamwork. I really miss getting to see your face and getting to have long eight hour discussions with you. <laughs> I, I sure appreciate you and all you do for your patients and what you do for your community and I love your family and I just, I'm just so grateful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. I miss you. And uh, I, I'm happy to see that you have developed this whole new part of your personality and your professional life. So all of that's very exciting. So I was happy to talk to you in your realm now. Yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe your team can listen to teamwork in the, on your playlist. <laughs> If we'll do that. If you're not too embarrassed, it's always embarrassing to listen to your own voice or see yourself. Uh, uh, and I, I'm critique of myself too. So just know that I try to I try not to listen to mine, um, but I have to, you know, for editing purposes. But after that, it's like I, I don't want to hear myself. I don't want to see myself. So that's just yeah. part of it. Well, even the great actors don't do that. So I think you're not alone. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening to the Leader You podcast, and I hope you found this podcast to be very helpful. I think teamwork is something that everybody could stand to work on and continue to build. It's a skill we're always learning, and we're all, we can always develop. So if you found this helpful, please share it with your network. It's free tips, tricks, wisdom on leadership competencies. Thank you for listening. Do you know that Black River offers a learning management system with over 10,000 development topics? The Leader U Learning Management System is an affordable option that empowers organizations to manage and curate in-house learning development opportunities. The built-in calendar and scheduling system can be used to coordinate compliance courses such as HR Respectful Workplace and IT Cybersecurity, or lunch and learns on topics such as motivation, self-leadership, and leading more effective meetings. At Black River, we are dedicated to providing a learning solution that focuses on engaging employees in their own self and team development. Our clients use the Leader U Learning Management System to remove barriers through accessible and self-paced micro-learning content, save time with the centralized and automated training assignments, promote more meaningful team discussions, issue certificates of completion and track development efforts, and enhance and simplify onboarding efforts. Contact us for more information on our learning management system at info at blackriverpm.com.